So, um, my name's Todd, and if you are new or if you're not new, I am not one of the folks that is usually up front on Sunday morning. Matt and Tom are both away this week, and they asked me to fill in, and it's my privilege to do so. Uh, if you are new to the community, I want to echo what everyone said so far. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, we hope that you feel welcomed and that you feel engaged. And we want to thank everybody who has made this morning possible, and they make it possible every week. The welcome folks and the folks that are setting up the hospitality, the musicians, the folks in the back, the folks that have been up front, thank you for the beautiful prayer. Um, so a little bit about myself. I have been a part of this community for about 10 years, and for three of those years, I was on the leadership team here. Uh, during the week, I, from about 7 a.m. to 2 p.m., my name is Mr. Curtis. I'm the high school history teacher. And then from about 3 o'clock on, my name is Daddy, 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 <laughs> to uh, three little girls. Uh, and many of you know my, my better half, Erin. She, uh, she's an optometrist, and she works really hard to support my teaching habit and, uh, <laughs> and our family. But she is, she's truly my best friend and, and the love of my life. Um, me being up here today is what my students would call a plot twist because I did not grow up a church kid. Um, I stopped going regularly in, in elementary school, much to the chagrin of my Aunt Aude, God rest her soul, who, who tried so hard with me. But I decided when, you know, in about fifth grade that, that Sunday school was just too big a time commitment for a 10-year-old. And uh, from that point on, I did not regularly go to church by High school, and certainly in college, I would have considered myself an agnostic, probably an atheist um, at that point. And so, you know, because science. And <laughs> when I was, towards the end of college is when I actually made a decision to, to follow Christ. And I remember for my 22nd birthday, and my mom's here, she probably remembers this. For my 22nd birthday, the only thing I asked for was a Bible one of those big fancy leather Bibles, you know, like the ones that you can double as a coaster because the leather's so good, the ring rubs right off, you know what I'm talking about? It was really good Bibles. Um, and I think my mom gave me a look that I now recognize because I'm a parent. It's that like, I don't want to discourage you, but I kind of want to know where all this is going, right? It's kind of like my, my girls, they're, they're seven, five, and four, and they come to me and they're like, we want to build a fort in the basement. <laughs> And I give them this same look, like my head is going, oh my gosh, okay, how big is this fork going to be? Are you gonna strip the beds? Is the linen closet fair game? Like what role will the dog play in the <laughs> fort? Right, all my head saying all those things, but my mouth is going, oh, fort sounds, sounds like a nice idea. It was kind of that, that, uh, that same reaction. So mom, here's, here's where all that was going. Right. Uh, to get you caught up, if you haven't been around, we are in the middle of a message series and a group experience called Rooted. And Rooted is about developing a faith that is steady and strong when the weather is fair and when the weather is not. Because we know that what is in us comes out of us, especially when we're tested, right? If we're filled with anger, we lash out. And if we're filled with sadness, we lament. And if we live with a sense that life has been unfair to us, we complain. This series is about developing a faith that goes down deep and brings out good things, even in difficult circumstances, things like peace and joy and patience and kindness. And if you are a skeptic and you're not sure that religion is trustworthy soil to put down roots in, 
Let me start by saying we are so glad that you and your questions and your doubts are here this morning. We built this place for you. The questions we ask you to consider during this series is what provides the roots, the anchors that define your life? And are they bringing about in you habits and actions that impact and influence your world in the way that you wish they would? So as we get started today, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit unusual. I'm going to ask for a little audience participation. And all the Catholics are like, yes, and also with you, right? So um, here's what I want you to do. This is going to be very quick. But I want you to think of something that you would recommend to somebody else. And it could be a show or a movie or a life hack or a product, right? whatever it is, something that you are like, wow, I'm, I'm jazzed about this, and I actually want you guys to do this. I want you to take like 30 seconds now, I want you to turn to somebody next to you, and I want you to tell them your recommendation. This is really my water break, so go ahead. <laughs> tell somebody something really cool that's around you. Can you, yeah. I have a drinking problem. I love it. All right. So I'm going to bring it back in. This is always the, uh, the tricky part of teaching, too, is that you, know, you, you turn the kids loose, you got to bring it back in. Um, so that's what we in, in the business call think, pair, share. Gail, you know what I'm saying, right? Um, and the person you just talked to is now known as your shoulder buddy. A little teaching, little teaching tips for you. So unless you totally choked right there or like a, or a totally expressed introvert, you probably find sharing things like that enjoyable, right? We like to feel smart and in the know and helpful. But the question that we're going to look at today is what happens when the thing we're sharing isn't about the, the wonders of our Instapot or the superiority of Rook Coffee or why everyone should be watching The Crown on Netflix. What happens when the thing that we are sharing with other people is our faith? And this is a critical question for us to think about because Park Church grew out of a group called Outreach Red Bank. This community came together more than a decade ago because we felt that a lot of churches are not doing such a great job reaching out to people outside the faith. In other words, church is for church people. For us to fulfill our original purpose, each one of us should consider how we can best tell others about the hope that we possess. Because we can have a great website and social media presence and programs and a really cool wear church, but if we are not inviting people along on the journey, then all those things are going to create the illusion that we're pursuing our founding vision when we're not. So why do we share? We share because we believe that Jesus Christ is our eternal hope. He gives us hope for the past as we find forgiveness and we find release from regrets. He gives us hope for the present as we find meaning and purpose. And he gives us hope for the future as we realize that nothing, failure, disappointment, even death, is the end of our story. So maybe you're asking yourself right now, should I be doing this? Should I be sharing this hope with others? 
Well, let me, I'm going to give you some ground rules first before you rush out there and do anything, okay? So here are some ground rules. Number one, if you are going to share your faith, you have to be perfect first. <laughs> you have to have it all together. Remember the time you cussed under your breath when the person went straight in the right lane at the corner of Sycamore and Shrewsbury? <laughs> Disqualified. <laughs> Number two, before you tell the world, you have to make sure that you have all the answers. You have to be able to eloquently dismantle those pedantic objections like, well, where did God come from? Right? Number three, you have to be willing to defend all the foolish things that Christians have ever done. I would suggest you keep a note on your iPhone called Westboro Baptist, not really my people, right? <laughs> Number four, whether or not somebody ultimately comes to believe in God, it's totally on you. It is up to you. So get your persuasive powers and go get them. Now, see, now I'm starting to get a little nervous. I know what nervous feels like in the room. Like, is this guy serious? Is this guy serious right now? <laughs> When it comes to this topic, it's really important to keep things in proper perspective. We do not have to be perfect, we do not have to have all the answers, and it's certainly not our job to convince anybody to become a Christian because we believe that only God has the power to open the eyes of faith and to reveal himself to people. The single most important thing that we can do is to pray. To pray for other people and pray for opportunities to share because that's exactly what sharing faith is. It's an opportunity. Like Matt said last week when he was talking about money, God does not need us to do this for him. In his wisdom and his love, he allows us to play a part in the work that he is doing. And what more satisfying work can there be than helping others find that hope that we have? Now, I wish I could transition at this point to some crazy stories about how I'm really good at this, like room full of people, you all came to Christ through me, but that's not at all the case. You see, I find that there are some things that hold me back from sharing my faith. And so um, as I look around the city, the time and the place where we live, I wonder three things. I wonder if sharing my faith is reasonable. I wonder if sharing my faith is relevant and I wonder if it's relatable. And I tell you this not to discourage you, but because if you're anything like me, you hear a lot of shoulds on Sunday that you're still not doing. And so sometimes I think we have to take one step back to take two steps forward. So maybe spending a few minutes talking about these things that hold us back will help bring some of those, those pregnant shoulds to life. So the first question, is faith reasonable? See, we live in a world right now where there are very loud voices that are hostile to faith. I, I did not get the memo that mentioning prayer publicly was no longer okay. If you've seen the reaction uh, to some events recently when people say, I'm praying for you, there's been a pretty, a pretty negative reaction to those things. So a little, little tip for you, if you're an avid Facebooker, stick with things like sending positive vibes your way, right? There's much less, much less blowback. Um, but this phenomenon is not just a blip in pop culture. There are people who build their whole brands around hostility to faith, right? Those expertainers like Neil deGrasse Tyson. And this hostility to faith, though, it extends deeper into the academy. It's hard to believe that most of the oldest and most prestigious universities in the world were founded to educate the faithful. Case in point, Oxford University in England, the motto there is Dominus Illuminatio Mea which means the Lord is my light. 
And at Oxford, there is a famous professor emeritus by the name of Richard Dawkins, whose most famous book is The God Delusion. And about two or three years ago in Washington, D.C., um, Richard Dawkins was doing an open forum, and somebody asked him, how should you respond to people who say they believe in God? And you know what Richard Dawkins said? He said you need to mock them. You need to ridicule them. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, he says that you need to ridicule them with contempt. And Dawkins is sort of, you know, the pope of a group that, that call themselves the New Atheists. I'm sure he'd love me calling the pope of that. Um, <laughs> and they have a whole cottage industry of books and podcasts and bloggers to discredit faith. And we hear these voices, and we can't help but wonder, is faith reasonable? And if this question holds you back from sharing faith, I want you to listen to the introduction of a response to the God delusion by an agnostic scientist and mathematician by the name of David Berlinski. And this is what Berlinski says. He says, has anybody provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good and what is right and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is, in, is irrational? Not even in the ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. You see, before I became a Christian, I needed that. I needed to be humbled. I needed to know that there are serious and credible answers to the really tough questions. And while those answers did not convince me to believe, they leveled the playing field between faith and, and facts. They cleared the decks, and they made me realize the possibility that God is reasonable. The second thing that we consider is whether sharing our faith is relevant. Sharing faith is some, some tricky business in this time and place where we live, an affluent and, and cosmopolitan place like Monmouth County, MoCo, as Matt, as Matt calls it, like every week. It seems like God in a place like this has been replaced by money or achievement or appearance or entertainment or comfort or power, things that, that church people call idols and that many church people also worship. Uh, but the danger of these things is that while you're chasing them and while you first achieve them, they can be all-consuming and satisfying. But from an objective point of view, we acknowledge that sooner or later we'll reach a point where these things are not big enough to provide the answers, to provide the solace, to provide the, the meaning that we're looking for. And that's why people are still looking. Barna, which is the premier polling firm for churches, they found that the fastest growing religious classification today, does anybody know the fastest growing religion in America today, according to Barna, is the nuns, not N-U-N-S, right? The nuns, as in people who claim no religious affiliation at all. 
But the good news, even in the nuns, is that most of those folks would not call themselves atheists. They're agnostics, or people who have walked away from organized religion. And so it's important to realize that people are still looking for something more. They are still looking for something transcendent. Because God created us in his image, and he set eternity in the hearts of men. And so sharing faith will always be relevant. And the third, and this is, I think, a less obvious issue, is the question of what I'm going to call relatability. Is faith true for you, or is faith true, period? For centuries now, faith has been increasingly subjectivized. It's been relegated upstairs to the private areas of life. Right? Faith is kind of treated like a lifestyle choice, like your, your hobbies or your fashion. Right? You, t- you mention to somebody that you go to church, and they think, oh, that's nice, I go to the theater. Right? Faith has been subjectivized in that way. And I ask you that, like, there's probably a lot of people who know that maybe you go to church, and not a lot of them probably ask questions about that. Because to a lot of folks, asking about that is like asking, why, why are you a Yankees fan? Right? Like, faith has become something that is not a matter of, of fact, it's a matter of, of tastes. Uh, and, truth and truth and falsehood, those things are worth arguing about. Right? But matters of taste are not. Right? You like vanilla and I like chocolate, and there's no real reason to, to talk about that. So, but we just discussed the fact that faith is relevant because people are still looking for something. But what many people are doing right now is remaining religious while rejecting religion. The way I think about it is that folks are lining up at what, what I think of as the great theology buffet. Right? And they're creating their own unique plates of belief. Right? So the, some of the more popular entrees are everything happens for a reason. Very popular entree. Another is God doesn't like mean people with a side of so you should be nice. Right? <laughs> the vegetarian option is I'm spiritual but not religious. Right? Can't have any meaty religion. Uh, and I'm not trying to make fun here. I'm just trying to illustrate. Because here's the question I think that the, the faith buffet raises. If there is a God... Are our preferences about who he is more important than who he is? Is our right to go to the faith buffet and create a God that we find palatable more important than God's character? Is God so infinitely malleable that he can truly be all things to all people? Or in being all things, especially contradictory things, does God become no thing? It's funny, some of the traits that we respect most about people, that they're true to themselves and that they're consistent and they're willing to fight for what's right, that they have integrity and that they're the same person in different circumstances. But when we claim that God is a certain way or that he wants certain things for the world, many people recoil at that as exclusivity or as judgment. You see, if you're, if you're going to share your faith, you should realize that some people are going to see it that way as exclusivity or judgment. But we need to consider when we do this, are we sharing our faith experience with others, something that's unrelatable, something that's good for us, or are we sharing something that is relatable? Is faith good for everyone? Because to subjectivize and privatize it is to ultimately trivialize it. Or as C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if true, is of the utmost importance. If not true, is of no importance at all. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. 
So there's the three big issues, right? There are loud voices that are increasingly hostile to faith, and so we wonder if it's rational, and the culture seems to be moving away from faith, and we wonder if it's still relevant, and faith has been relegated to the, the faith experience, and we wonder whether or not what we're sharing is truly relatable. So the issue for us who believe and want to share our faith is how do we, how do we work through that? And so to find an answer to this question, we're going to look at the teachings of a man named Paul. Besides Jesus himself, Paul is the person most responsible for why we are sitting here today. Paul was the man who took the message of Jesus from one backwoods colony of the Roman Empire to the outside world. If you don't know, Paul enters history as a man named Saul. He was wealthy, he was educated, he was influential in his time and place. In other words, he had the most to lose from the message of Jesus that changes everything. And he, he reacted exactly how you would expect. He, he saw it as a threat, and therefore he arrested, and he persecuted, and he even executed people who claimed to be followers of the way. People feared him. But at a moment in history, when he was on his way from one city to another to catch up with and to snuff out this faith that he resented, something happened. There was an experience that changed his life, and through him, many of ours as well. You see, he encountered the resurrected Jesus. He did not hear a really convincing argument. He did not have an attack of conscience for how he was treating people. He did not stick his finger in the wind and realize that the currents had shifted against him. He had an experience that left him no choice but to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And he switched sides. He went from being the star player on the team that was sure to win the day, and he joined the losing team. And the stakes here were not trophies and titles, but life and death. And afterwards, Paul spends time learning about the life and teachings of Jesus from his followers, and then he sets out into the world, and he goes from city to city, and he founds little communities of believers, not unlike this one. And then later on, he would write letters back to those communities. And so what we're going to look at today is a letter he wrote back to a community he founded in a place called Corinth, which was a large commercial city in Greece. <laughs> and what he says is this. For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human, str human strength. See, Paul explains here that when we share our faith as individuals or as an outreach church, we might not be giving people exactly what they're looking for. Faith can seem foolish because it requires us to see beyond ourselves and our own perspective and to start with God and his perspective. 
because the foundation that we stand on is God and what he has done in Christ. You see, if we start with ourselves instead of God, then faith may hinge on a set of circumstances, what, what we see here as the Jews seeking signs, or our faith may, may require a system that makes perfect sense, or what Paul here calls wisdom. So let's look at why a faith based on signs or wisdom may seem sensible to us, but foolish to God. So let's start with the Jews who seek signs or miracles in some translations. You see, the Jews in this passage, you know what they wanted? They wanted Jesus to be a political revolutionary. They wanted him to overthrow the rule of Rome and restore dignity and power to their community. They represent the people whose faith hinges on God, giving them the circumstances that they're looking for. God is reduced, as C.S. Lewis said, to a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Faith becomes transactional. It's a means to an end. And there are some very successful preachers who bring this promise. They try to make faith relevant and relatable by promising that if you believe and pray in the right way, you can get God to give you what you're looking for. For people, especially people in a bad spot, this can be a tempting offer. Follow this formula and you'll be blessed financially or freed from your troubles or given your heart's desire. Paul knows, though, that if people come to faith with the expectation that God is going to be their cosmic genie, that they're bound to be disappointed. And that disappointment is going to be what he calls a stumbling block between them and God. And the word used here for stumbling block in Greek, you know what the word translates to better in English? What, what it's the root word for in English? Scandal. Paul knows that when inevitable difficulties come, that this God of all blessing will be scandalized. The second group that he points to are the Greeks, who sought first a system that made sense. They set about answering all their questions in a sensible way, and if there were questions that philosophy could not answer, that's where God fit in. Faith lived in the shadows of philosophy, and God was reduced to a God of the gaps. And as knowledge grew, God shrunk. Listen to how Paul describes the situation when he visited Greece. He says, people of Athens, I see in every way that you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God, to a God of the gaps. He goes on to say, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Paul says, listen, God is not just the God in the gaps. He is the maker of the world, and therefore, he is behind all knowledge itself. You can't build the system and then squeeze God in. When we share our faith as individuals or as a church, some people will respond that they, that they have to wait until there's enough evidence before God can become reasonable to them. But what they've done there is that they've built a system of knowledge, and they're trying to fit God in. They're trying to squeeze God in. Or, people build a system of morals first, and then demand that God see things their way. But Paul realized the timeless truth, that the invitation to faith 
is ultimately an invitation to decide what you believe. None of us will ever get to a place where our intellect has no objections whatsoever. At some point, faith is making a commitment to something that we do not fully understand. In making such a commitment, Paul promises that to a lot of people, you will look like a fool. So what does Paul say? Paul says that our faith that we share has to be deeper than our feelings about our circumstances and bigger than what our minds can imagine. Because faith does not start with us. It starts with God, not some distant force in the universe and not some terrible micromanager. According to, God, according to Paul, the basis of the faith we share is a God named Jesus Christ who came to be crucified. That is neither the feel-good story that people are looking for or the reasonable outcome that people were seeking. And before we go on cruise control here, because we've reached the churchy answers portion of our program, let's just talk about how absurd an idea this is. Right? Christ crucified. God killed on a cross. The only reason that that does not sound totally ridiculous is because we live in a world where it happened. Right? There should not be a category in your mind for this, for a God who's been, who's been murdered by Romans. Right? That should not make sense. And Paul is not going the martyr route here, right? He didn't say like, yo, they killed our guys, so viva la revolucion, right? That's not what we're talking about here with Christ crucified. There's no revolution here. There's something even more unexpected, a resurrection. We simply should not have a category for this in our brain, for a God who died and rose again. So the starting point for the faith that we possess and the faith that we share, it has to be here. Not with a God as we imagine he should be, but with the real God who made himself known through Jesus. Our faith is reasonable and relevant and relatable precisely because it does not begin with us. It begins with a moment in history. Because Christianity, more than a religion, is a movement based on something that happened long ago. Listen to Paul, how, how he puts the rest of this story at the end of this letter he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Peter and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. It's like Paul is begging here to be fact-checked. He's saying, listen, they're still alive. You can go ask them if this is true. He's saying this stuff happened, and there are people all over who are risking their lives, not because of what they believe, but because of what they've seen. And it's not that the Jews were selfish for demanding signs or that the Greeks were wrong for seeking wisdom. To do these things is human. But to find the answers that we seek and the confidence to share them with others, we have to start with who God is and what he's done. Because then and only then 
can we have circumstances and a worldview that are in proper perspective? And what he's done is pretty incredible. Eternity entered history, people saw it, and it changed everything. Faith starts with a God who came into the world as a man. He was put to death in the most painful and ignoble way that man had ever come up with. Why? So we know who this God is that we put our faith in. And we know that we can trust what he's told us because he's proven how much he loves us. And then the only question left before us, before we share, is this. Has this event in history changed us? Not this religion, not this set of rules, not this set of circumstances, but a real relationship with the forever and loving God who made that relationship possible by entering history through Christ. Because we are meant to share what God has done and what God is doing as well in our own lives. When we share the story, it has to be that story, both what God has done and what God is doing. Then, questions of faith will be reasonable and relevant and relatable because they point to Him. And that is the only firm foundation. So as we close, here's what I want you to think about. If you dialed out, you're probably thinking about it anyway. I want you to think about your phone. <laughs> the younger people are twitching at the mention of, of it. On your phone, there's a contact list and there's an email list probably that nobody else on the planet has but you. And on that phone, there's probably apps that take you to a social media network that is unique to you. You see, you have a unique platform. And you have an opportunity to use that platform to point people to God and what he has done and what he is doing in your life and in the life of this community. The question is, are we going to use our platform to promote ourselves, to promote our preferences, to promote our politics, or are we going to use that platform to promote something even bigger? And I get it. We fear that people will think that we're weird or judgmental or naive or foolish or that we're hypocrites. And while this is a hashtag first world problem, I get it because losing your reputation in the eyes of people, that's a real loss. But Paul has taught us that the foundation of our faith is not us and our reputation. It's in a cross and a rolled away stone. And heck, as long as folks think you're, you're sincere in your belief about that, who cares if they think you're crazy, right? <laughs> now, I'm not standing before you, like I said, as the master of this. Preparing this message for me has been eye-opening and it's been convicting. But as we close, I want to come back to the story about how I became a Christian when I was 22. It actually starts when I was a junior in high school. I went to a Sweet 16 at a VFW in Middletown, and I had no idea that that night would change my life forever. I ended up seated at a table with my nemesis from middle school. A kid named Andrew, whose sister-in-law is in the room. <laughs> you see, I moved in eighth grade, and Andrew did not exactly make nice with the new kid. <laughs> but by the end of that night, Andrew and I had made peace, and we had made friends. 
Now, what I came to learn about Andrew, his middle school teasing notwithstanding, is that he believed in this crucified Christ. And while Andrew was far from perfect, he had something. His faith made him deeper or more interesting or more real in some way. And so I made it my mission to talk him out of it, mostly because that faith kept us from getting in trouble together. Nervous laughter. <laughs> it's because your teenagers are in the room? Is that? But because I met Andrew, through him I met Jesus. And I started to ask real questions. And eventually, I looked for answers. I took classes in college on New Testament and Eastern religions, and I read books, and I went to speakers, and I looked at articles. And for six years, six years this went on. And here's what I brought today just to show you. This is my, my high school yearbook. This is my yearbook from senior year. And you know how Andrew's signature in my yearbook closes? It closes with this. Maybe I'll convert you someday, <laughs> if you don't convert me first. And he even, he even drew Calvary down there with the three crosses, okay, so you can see. But as we, as we move forward into college, Andrew and I did not run in the same circles in college, but as fate would have it, his fraternity house, junior and senior year, was right next door to where I lived. And there were so many Saturday nights that we would cross paths at two or three in the morning and maybe we weren't in such good shape. And you know what Andrew would do? He'd invite me to church in the morning. Because he wasn't perfect, but his conviction never wavered. And you know why Andrew was ultimately able to share his faith with me in a way that made a difference? But because behind his good arguments and his bad arguments, behind his good choices and his bad choices, behind everything that he did, was the always rational, always relevant, and always relatable Christ. And that's who he was pointing me to. And so, the summer after I graduated from college, I guess he converted me first. Because I called Andrew and I said, I don't know what this looks like, but let's do it. Let's do it. You see, he showed me how much he cared about me by sharing his life with me and by sharing his faith with me. And because his life and faith pointed to Christ, it changed my life. Not marginally, not whipped cream on top. It changed my life totally. And it wasn't sudden, but that course correction 20 years ago has produced a life in me that is totally unrecognizable from the one I would have chosen for myself. And so such is the promise that God gives to each one of us today. If we share our lives and our faith with others. He will be the true north beyond you and the power behind you when you share. So let us all endeavor to put our doubts aside and to share with other, this, others with this God who has entered both history and our own lives so that the lives of others may be changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your work in the world. Lord, I thank you for the people that you used to reach me many years ago, and I pray, Lord, that each one of us would consider how we can reach out to others and spur them on to good deeds, how we can give a defense of the faith that we possess and to do so with gentleness and humbleness. And Lord, I pray that as the weeks pass, that this room would be more full and more full 
of people who are coming to know you and follow you because of what we've shared with them, our lives and our faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.